such thing as small sins in heaven. God is perfectly holy. No sin, and I repeat, no sin can enter into that perfect place. And that's why He sent His Son, Jesus, to redeem fallen humanity. Turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs 8.13. Proverbs 8.13. And while you're turning there, I just wanted to acknowledge uh, Pastor Devin at this time. He's been running around for the last half an hour just trying to get everything in control. So uh, he's, he's been the MVP tonight. So, so Proverbs 8.13. We'll be reading this verse out loud together. Even though you're at home, I want you to read this verse out loud with me. And I trust that um, this message will be a blessing to those listening tonight. Proverbs 8.13, it says, read out loud with me, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy, and the evil way and the forward mouth do I hate. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Now I've got a question for you. You're at home, so you can probably answer this out loud if you will. But what do you hate? What do you hate? Now, different things, different answers may be popping up in your mind, but what do you hate a lot? Now, hopefully a person's face doesn't show up. Pastor White just preached a message on forgiveness a couple weeks ago, and so hopefully everything's been settled since then. But what do you hate? Like they said in elementary school, like they said in high school, hate is a strong word. And they're correct. Hate is a strong word. To hate something or to hate someone expresses this, an intensely negative attitude towards that particular person or object. To say that you hate something means you resent that. You abhor that particular thing. Oftentimes, we throw around the word hate, but we don't often mean it, per se. For example, best friends, two best friends, two close friends, they jokingly tell each other uh, here and then, I hate you. Do they really hate each other? No, but they jokingly tell each other that they hate each other. People often sarcastically say, oh, I hate my life when something inconvenient happens. A couple months ago, I stubbed my toe on something. And I groaned while in pain. I said, ah, I hate my life. Do I really hate my life? No. I was just using it to exaggerate the present condition. When we say we hate something, we frequently use the word very lightly. We use it jokingly. We use it sarcastically. We, we, ex we use it to exaggerate a statement. But rarely do we ever use the word as it is meant to be used with the proper emotions attached to the word. To hate something is a very powerful statement. If you truly meant to say that you hate a particular object or person, that means you really, really abhor that thing. It's a powerful word. Now with that being cleared out, what is something that you truly hate? Not jokingly, not sarcastically, not comedically, what is something you truly hate? 
What is something that you, when you think of it, your, your blood boils just at the thought of it? At the sight of it, you get angry. Now I can head online to the internet. I can look at forums and ask people, what do you hate? And I believe that these 10 things people will frequently mention. I believe there's a lot of people in the world today that hate their family. You know, coming from a loving family, that's almost something that I can't just uh, can't fathom. But there's a lot of people who grew up in an abusive home. Maybe they grow up to hate their parents. Parents, maybe they, they grow older and hate their children. Siblings hate each other. That's the state of the world we live in. We live in a world with broken homes. And the truth is, many people hate even their own family. Some people, they would say they hate the government, especially with the, the recent pandemic. There's a lot of people who are not pleased with how the government has handled it, and they're hurling insults, hurling attacks towards the government, expressing their hate towards whoever, whoever the leader is of the country, Trudeau and anybody else. They start throwing hate and, and attacking those people. Some people would say that they hate their jobs. They're in their mid-30s, they're, they're in a job that they, they studied all their life for, but they've come to realize that they don't like it. And now they're going eight to, eight, to, uh, 8 to 5, going to this job, and they hate it. Some people might say they hate school. They hate studying, they hate tests. Hate, hate, hate. I think a more common answer is people will say that they hate other people who have wronged them. Even when you're a child, somebody could say something mean to you, and you would carry that memory throughout your life, and you would carry this bitterness and hatred towards that particular individual when you're an adult. It's a lot of people who hate other people. We live in a world where it is more common to hate our fellow neighbor than to love them. Some people hate a wrong decision that they made. Some people hate the other gender. You know, there's ultra-feminists out there. There are, um, there are people, there are men who just, uh, who are very misogynistic. We live in a world filled with hatred. There are those who absolutely hate religion. Not just Christianity, but they absolutely hate all organized religions. Whether it be Islam or Sikhism, whether it be Judaism, whether it be um, Buddhism, Taoism. They hate all religions. There are people who believe that society would be better if there was no such thing as God. And there are those who hate criminals. That's more understandable. And the list goes on. When you ask people what they hate, people have all sorts of answers. In fact, I searched up myself on Google, what do people hate? And the, the, the list was so expansive. Some were so minor, but people had ex extreme opinions regarding this small thing. But people have a lot of things that they hate. In the Bible, we are explicitly told to love others. We're not told in the Bible to hate our fellow man. We're not told in the Bible to hate our family members, to hate our siblings, whether they be abusive or whether they be normal. No one in the Bible does it say that we are to hate our neighbors. Whether it be a companion or an enemy, we are told to love. And we are also told to be joyful regardless of our circumstances. 
Whether we are at a dead-end job or whether we are in a, in a, in a country that has a, a terrible government, we are told to be joyful and not to hate. We are rarely told to hate anything in Scripture. But whenever hatred and this act of hating is mentioned, it always involves this one thing. We are only explicitly commanded to hate one thing and one thing alone, and that is sin. Not the sinner, to hate sin. Heralding back to our opening text, Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the forward mouth do I hate. That's the Lord speaking. In Psalm 45.7 it says, Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. We are explicitly told to hate evil and wickedness and all sorts of synonyms. To hate evil and sin and to love righteousness instead. We all want to do well in a Christian walk. We all want to walk worthy. We all want to finish the race that is set before us. We want to we all hear we want to hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We all want to live a good Christian life, but in order to do so, we have to start seeing sin, no matter how large, no matter how small it may be, we have to start seeing sin how God views it. Not how we view sin, but how God views sin. And I have three points tonight, but before that, let's just open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for just allowing us all to be here today and for just allowing um, the three here, the three staff here, to just be able to um, do what is required to be able to have the life service. And we thank you, Lord, for giving us grace. I pray, Lord, for my message that you would help me and just fill me with your spirit. And remove my headache, remove my fatigue. Allow me to preach with power, Lord. Again, there's no success, no power without your help. I pray that I would preach this message uh, completely um, in your spirit, Lord. And not just, not my own words, not my own thoughts, but your words alone that I preach. I pray that they would touch the hearts of those listening at home. I pray this all in your name. Amen. Now, it's easy to say, we ought to hate sin. But the truth of the matter is, we can't just wake up tomorrow morning and start hating sin. We can't just roll out of our bed tomorrow morning and start hating sin and have success. And what I mean by that is, sure, we could probably pull it off for a few days. Maybe we could have a changed view on sin for a couple days. Maybe the better, the, the, those who are better at, at keeping convictions, maybe we can last a couple of weeks. But no doubt, if there is no foundation to your convictions, your conviction is not going to last long. You may hate sin for the next few days, but eventually, again, because of the, Satan's influence, because of the world's influence, you'll start reverting back to your old self, to your old man to how you used to think. Your conviction, it needs reasoning. It needs a foundation. 
Otherwise, it's quite weak and it will fall apart within a couple of weeks. For this particular conviction, which is to hate sin and to view sin as God sees it, for this particular conviction to stick and to last long term, there's an important prerequisite. There's a condition that you must fulfill before you can actually start hating sin as you ought to. And I mean, we've already read it, Proverbs 8.13. But this prerequisite is a fear of the Lord. A fear of the Lord. Turn with me in Psalm 33, verse 8. Psalm 33, verse 8. Pastor Deven, is it possible if you can give me just a cup of water? Thank you so much. Psalm 33, verse 8. Again, read it out loud with me. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Before we can get to the point that we truly hate sin, there is one prerequisite. There is a universal command that we must first obey. And that is to fear God. A a, a fear of the Lord is what is necessary before we can start hating sin. That is the prerequisite. What many Christians lack today is that there's not a lot of Christians who truly fear the Lord anymore. There's a couple of reasons for this. Some see God as uh, an abstract being, an impersonal being even. Thank you so much. They don't see and consider God as a person. And that's why they don't respect and fear Him. When we hear the word fear, we often think about things that scare us because that's the common usage of the word. Fear is something that can give us, uh, um, that can make us afraid. Now, I've met a lot of people who had different phobias. Um, I've met a, I have had a friend before who was extremely scared of dogs. And that, scared of, uh, that fear of dogs came because he was, he was bit as a child by a, like a, a small chihuahua, I believe. And so when he grew up to be this muscular adult, he's still scared of a chihuahua and he's still scared of dogs because of the trauma. Some people, they're afraid to be alone in the dark. They hate just being uh, surrounded by, this, by the, the darkness. They're afraid of that. Some people are afraid of heights. There's a lot of people who are afraid of death because they're, they're, not, they're unsure about what lies after death. There are some who are afraid of public speaking even. There's a lot of phobias that we have, a lot of fears that we have. Now, the fear of the Lord is not that uh, definition, that you're afraid of the Lord, that the Lord is, want, is, makes you want to hide and run away. That's not the fear that, is trying to be, that, is, that we are commanded to have. But the way we think of it the way we use the word fear is it's, it's an unwanted feeling. It's a negative, unwanted feeling. So if fear is a negative, unwanted feeling, why is the Bible telling us that we should fear God? Can we love God and fear God simultaneously? That sounds like it's an impossible task. How can you love something that you are deathly afraid of? Is that the fear that the Bible is trying to build upon, build in the believer? 
No. Heralding back to the verse we just read, the definition of fear in this context is not being afraid of God, but fear in this context means you revere and you respect Him. You respect God. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Does that verse denote a person who is afraid and wanting to run away? No. That verse is showing a person who is completely enamored with God. Completely amazed with God. That is the fear that we first must have. That reverence and that respect for the Lord. Fearing God does not mean that we hide under our blankets and hide in our closets at the, at the mention of God's name. No, that is not the fear that is trying to be instilled upon the believer. I remember one particular year, a long time ago when I was in the latter end of elementary school, I came home with a pretty poor report card. I didn't get the best grades that time, that year. And I remember when I got home, I already was afraid. I was so afraid that I went inside my closet and I hid there for hours because I didn't want my parents to ask me about my report card. I didn't want them to find out that I had a bad report card and I was afraid. So I ran away and just hid. That's not the fear that we ought to have towards the Lord. First of all, we can't run away from Him. He's omniscient, He's omnipresent. But again, that's not the relationship that He wants to have with us. To fear Him is to revere and respect who God is, to respect His character, to respect His entirety, His being. Now, all of us here, we might say that we revere God already, that we already, already respect God. But we shouldn't be content with the reverence that we've shown so far. We need to increase. So how do we revere God more? How do we come to respect God even more? The only way to do that is by getting to know God more yourself. A lot of people, what they know about God is what they have been taught by the preacher. And there's not, nothing wrong with that. But a lot of people, they've lived their old, entire Christian life not having had any personal experiences, not having had any personal blessings bestowed upon them by God, not having any personal uh, answers to prayer. Everything that they know about God has been given to them by a speaker on the pulpit, by books that they have read. And that only happens when we don't bother to have a personal relationship with Him. This is why we place significance on reading your Bible. This is why we believe that reading your Bible and studying it is so vital to the Christian walk because reading and studying the Bible is how we know God more. We can't know God more by consulting the internet, by consulting Google, because that is open to uh, personal interpretations, that is open to false doctrines, false teachings. If you want to know exactly what, the, what, what is said about God, we've got to study the Bible. If you want to revere and respect God more and have a proper fear of Him, you need to study your Bible. Learn His attributes. What's so significant that he is omnipresent, omniscient, 
omnipotent. His justice, His holiness, His righteousness, His love, His mercy. What is so important about all these attributes? Ask those questions yourself and you will come to a deeper relationship and a deeper knowledge of God through your study. If someone were to come up to me and ask me to describe why hockey, ice hockey, is such an amazing sport, guess what? I wouldn't be able to answer them. I don't know why hockey is such an amazing sport to you. The reason why I wouldn't be able to answer that question or be able to talk extensively about that particular topic is because I have no desire to know or watch or play hockey. I have never had the desire to know it. So why should I think highly of it? On top of that, I have very limited experience with hockey. I don't even remember the last time I played any form of hockey. So for me to talk highly of something without having had any personal experience with it is kind of, will be misleading. Everything I say will kind of be made up and fabricated because I have no personal experiences with it. On top of that, I can't talk highly of hockey because I don't even know the rules. I don't even know the intricacies of the sport. I don't know anything about the sport. All I know is that two teams are fighting to get a puck into the other net. That's about it. So because I have no desire to watch hockey, I have limited experience, personal experience with hockey, and because I don't know the, the deeper things about hockey, I can't, talk, I can't talk highly of it. To me, it's an unknown sport. And something that is unknown to me, I can't revere and respect. If you apply that, those same reasonings to your relationship with God, you'll find that a lot of people have trouble revering and respecting God because, first of all, they don't have the desire to know God. We have a desire for everything else to do better in everything else but to know God more. Our desire is lacking. Some don't revere God as they ought because they don't have a personal relationship with Him. As I've said, are all the things you know about God just from eyewitness, from people that, you, that, that have told you about how good God is? Or how, do you have any personal experiences with Him? Has He delivered you from trials? Has He poured upon blessings on your life? Has He allowed you to witness and lead a soul to Christ? Has He equipped and strengthened you for a ministry and service? Has He done something incredible that is beyond logic in your life? Or is everything that you know about Him just from testimony? Do you have a personal relationship with Him? Because we can't revere God without that personal relationship. And also, many don't revere Him because we don't know Him at a deep level. We know He's God. We know he's, His nation is Israel. We know that He sent His Son to earth to rescue humanity. But beyond that, we don't know the deeper things about Him. And so we can't respect Him as much because we only know the basics of God. Growing up, I always found boxing to be a snooze fest. Whenever we, there would be like a, a gathering to, to watch Manny Pacquiao or anything like that, I, for me it would be very boring. I would be watching and I wouldn't get what was so exciting about this, this uh, occasion. And it's because I didn't understand the sport. Now, just a couple months back, I started doing a little bit of the training 
regarding, uh, similar to the boxing training, when I started understanding the techniques needed, when I started understanding the, the, the training needed to get to that level, now re-watching those Manny Pacquiao fights, I have more respect for the sport now. I'm more focused and I have more uh, attention to what is happening rather than just dismissing it. See, the thing is, if you know something at a deeper level, you will have a greater respect for it. When you know God at a deeper level, you'll understand that God is not just God from times past. That He, was not just, that he isn't just powerful in, in, long ago. But you will understand that God is powerful today. That God, can, uh, that, God, that God can raise miracles outside of scriptures. That he, can, that he continues to work today. You will only understand those things if you will bother to learn God more and at a deeper level. Have the desire to know Him. Have a personal relationship with Him. And get to know Him at a more intimate level. We all have different hobbies. And it's sad that sometimes we know more about those hobbies. We know more technicalities about those hobbies than we do about our Savior. We know so much. Our, our, our brains are capable of storing so much information that we don't bother to fill up our brains with knowledge of, the, of God. The knowledge of the Holy if we desire to know Him, have a personal relationship with Him and know Him at a deeper level, I believe that our fear for God will skyrocket. God will no longer be a stranger in your life, but He will actually be someone that you rely on. He will no longer be an observer in your life, but He will actually be a, an active participant in your life. Guiding you, equipping you with what you need, enabling you to do the work that He has given you, strengthening you, encouraging you, that is the God we serve, but to many, it's just been relegated to what they see in Scripture. They don't have any personal experience with Him. And simultaneously, because of that, they don't have any respect and a fear of Him. Matthew Henry, the renowned commentator, said this, This is most necessary, that we fear God. Let me repeat that. This is most necessary that we fear God. We are not qualified to profit by the instructions that are given us unless our minds be possessed with the holy reverence of God. And every thought within us be brought into obedience to Him. We will know enough if we know how to fear God and are careful in everything to please Him and fearful of offending Him in anything. Matthew Henry was a brilliant uh, theologian and his commentary has blessed many people and he's always been striving to discover the deeper things in Scripture. But even to a man like Matthew Henry who sought knowledge and who had a lot of knowledge as well on, on, uh, regarding Scripture, to him, what was most important is to have a fear of God. All that knowledge will be, uh, will be useless if a Christian first doesn't have a holy reverence, a holy fear of God. That is a prerequisite. The prerequisite must be followed before we can actually obey the command 
And that's the, point, the second point here tonight. The first point was the prerequisite is to fear the Lord. The second point is the command, which is to hate sin. Proverbs 3.7, turn with me there. Proverbs 3.7. It says, Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. From that verse, we see kind of an order. Before we start hating evil, before we start hating wickedness and sin, again, the fear of the Lord must first be present. If you don't fear the Lord, it's going to be impossible for you to hate sin as you ought. Fearing the Lord must come prior to you hating sin. Again, I, I stress this enough, I can't stress this enough, but we cannot, and I repeat, we cannot ever view sin how God views sin if we don't fear and revere God. For us to get to the point that we understand the wickedness of even the smallest of sins, we first need to understand how holy God is. God is absolutely perfect, morally perfect, perfect moral standard. What may be a small sin to us, you know, in God's sight, that small sin is despicable. And that holiness, that perfect holiness of God is sometimes hard for us to grasp. To kind of illustrate this using a little bit more of a modern illustration, there's such a, a person in these day and age called a sneakerhead. Now a sneakerhead is basically an individual who collects shoes. They collect expensive shoes. That's, the, the, that's their hobby. Now most of these guys, they only collect the shoes, but they don't really wear them. So they only collect expensive shoes and they put them in a display, in a nice display to kind of just uh, show people what they have. But they like to keep everything in pristine condition, these shoe collectors. Everything must be perfect to them. They don't want cuffs. Uh, they don't want scuffs on the shoe. They don't want creases on the shoe. They don't want stains or dirt or any other um, flaws on the shoe that they buy. Everything must be perfect and everything must remain perfect for them. Now you can go up to me and you can accidentally step on my shoe. And guess what? I would probably dismiss the whole situation. It was an accident. I don't really care if people step on my shoe. They're not expensive, they're just common shoes. But if you were to go and accidentally step on the shoes of a sneakerhead, you might have a little bit of a different situation. You might have a fight in your hands. Now why is a person so angry about a dirty shoe? And it's because these guys have a higher standard for what they want their shoes to be like. They have a higher standard, a more strict standard in regards to their, condition, their, their shoes condition. Similarly, God has a much more perfect moral standard. No sin, no matter how small and minuscule they may be, is permitted into heaven. If small sins were allowed into heaven, guess what? There wouldn't be a need for a Savior. We would just have to be ultimately perfect and just uh, get around committing small sins and then we'll, we'll get into heaven. But no, there's no such thing as small sins in heaven. God is perfectly holy. No sin, and I repeat, no sin can enter 
into that perfect place. And that's why he sent his son, Jesus, to redeem fallen humanity. He's a perfectly holy God. To take away his holiness or to lessen his holiness means you are making him less than God. You cannot change God's perfect moral standard. He is holy, thrice holy even. He views no sin as a light act. That's the, re- that's the problem is that we tend to view sin how we would want to view sin, how we see it, how we humans see it. We see a lie, we see a wicked thought, we see the act of spreading gossip, we see the act of starting fights, verbal arguments. We see those things as trivial. We see those things as inconsequential sins. Ah, God won't care about those. God won't care about that wicked thought I just had. It only lasted for two seconds. God doesn't care about those things, right? Folks, that's not the case. God is omniscient. 365 days a year, 24-7, He sees everything that we're doing. And yes, there are times where we might be unknowingly committing a sin, and He has grace and mercy to forgive us of those sins, but there are many times that we are willingly committing these small sins and allowing and thinking that we are just going to let them, that God's going to let them slide. Once you understand God's holiness, once you understand His character and His, His perfect moral standard, that's when you start understanding that God sees all sin as abominable, as an abomination, is how the Bible likes to say. An abomination is something that is absolutely disgusting. An abomination is something that is absolutely vile, that makes you want to hurl. That's how God views the small sins that we think are small. If I were to ask you, what is something that you find absolutely disgusting? Some people would say bugs. It's a lot of people who just hate creepy crawlies. They hate spiders for some reason. And they just hate anything. They just hate all bugs and they find them absolutely disgusting. They wouldn't go near it. Some people, they, think, they might think of a certain dish that is absolutely nasty. There's a dish in the world called surstroming, and it's this um, fermented fish or some, some type of fermented fish. But anyways, it is crowned in the world as one of the world's nastiest smelling foods. Apparently, just a whiff of the, the, the food will make you want to gag and will make you want to hurl. That's how bad the smell is. Now, though, those are more comedic examples of abominations, you could say. But if one were to come up to me and ask me what I found disgusting and absolutely abominable in this world today, the things that I would say would probably be things like bestiality, things like pedophilia, things like rape, domestic abuse and abortion. Those acts to me are an abomination. Absolutely disgusting acts. And truly, those are some of the worst of the worst crimes that a person could commit today. They're horrible. There's no doubt about it. There's no doubt about it. Those are horrible things to do. 
But did you know that how I view those major sins, major acts as an abomination, God views the smaller sins that we commit as an abomination. The same way that I look at, at things like abortion as an abomination, God sees pride similarly also as an abomination. And you might be thinking, where does it say that in the Bible? Turn with me to Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. And it says, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. And the seven are a proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. To God, pride, a lying tongue, a wicked imagination, the act of causing trouble, bearing false witness and sowing discord among Christians, those are all to him as abominable as murder, as hands that shed innocent blood. We don't see pride and, and murder in the same plane. We think that murder is much worse. But to God, both of those things are an abomination. That's how perfect God is. The sins that we are giving the go-ahead and the, the, that we give an okay, that we think are normal, are abominable in God's sight. Now, one person watching tonight has, is not guilty of pride. All of us struggle with pride in some form or another. Some might be uh, guilty of a lying tongue. They just can't help but say something false. And regarding that, some people just like to t- spread rumors. They like to bear false witness and def- defame a person's reputation. Some people like to dis- sow discord. They love to cause, make people fight one another. Some of us here may have wicked imaginations. We are good on the outside, but internally in our minds we have wicked imaginations and God sees those wicked thoughts as abominable, as murder. Again, this is not to say that all sins are equal in severity. We see in the Mosaic Law, uh, God punished different sins differently, obviously. Some sins required the person to just give compensation to the person they wronged. Some sins made the person uh, cut off from Israel. And other sins, the punishment was death. So we see that there are different severity in sin, that lying and, and murder is not necessarily equally severe. But what I am saying is that all sins are equal in the fact that they, all sins separate us from the presence of God. Yes, some sins may be more severe and more grave, But the bottom line is all sins, small and great, all sins will separate us from the presence of God. Did did Adam have to murder somebody to introduce spiritual and physical death into the world? No. All he did was eat a fruit. All he did was disobey God's simple command. Similarly, we are separated from God even by the smallest sins. 
Unless you accept Christ's gift, you will be forever separated from Him. No matter how many, no matter if you were never a murderer or never done anything grave, you will still be forever separated from Him if you don't accept the gift of salvation. As a believer, the more we commit these small sins, the more we separate ourselves from the presence of God. Not to say that we lose our salvation, but to remove ourselves from, the pre- from His presence. In His presence, that's where we experience blessings upon blessings. But when we are habitually sinning, we are removing ourselves from that, from that circle of blessing, from His fellowship. If you want to constantly be in God's presence, if you want to gain victory over sins that you have always struggled with, there is one thing you need to do, and you need to doubly fear Him. You need to doubly fear Him. Going back to that prerequisite for you to hate sin, you need to doubly fear God. The first fear that we must have is, again, the respect, respecting God. If you naturally respect and are revering God, you will naturally deviate away from committing sins. If you respect a person, you don't want to trouble them. You don't want to disappoint them. Similarly, if we respect and revere God, we don't want to disappoint Him by committing sins again and again. But the second fear that we must have is to fear His judgment. At the end of the day, God is not only holy, but He is completely just. And because of His justice, He will chasten His children who have gone down the wrong path. And it's natural to be afraid of chastening because it's painful. This type of fear is necessary sometimes. I know a person who has was turned back to the right path when a preacher had to really rebuke him and really tell him of all of the life that he's living is completely wrong, yelling that he, the path that he is headed toward is destruction. And that rebuking and that chastening that God, God used that preacher to chasten him, that allowed him to turn back to the right path. The normal standard fear is sometimes necessary. So at the end of the day, God is omnipotent. And His omnipotence, He can judge us for our sin. And we must be afraid of that. But that is not the prevailing fear that we must have. We are not to be afraid of the Lord. God is our loving Father. He's not an oppressive authoritarian that is just waiting to strike His hammer down on us. That's not the type of relationship we ought to have. Predominantly, we must have an awe and reverence of Him but it's also good to fear His judgment. Those two fears, two definitions of fears, will allow us to overcome sin. Again, we face a great foe. Satan is incredibly clever. He doesn't just use one avenue to attempt attempt and attack you. He knows who you are. He knows your weakness. And he knows what areas he can attack you. And our life is, is really just filled with a lot of temptations, a lot of things that are proding and, and pushing us towards wickedness. That's the world we live in today. The only way we can start resisting those temptations, to start hating those temptations, is first a fear of the Lord. Only a constant fear of God will allow you to conquer these powerful temptations. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. 
Folks, you have to hate sin with every fiber of your being. Some of us, we all struggle with different sins. But no matter whatever sin that you are personally struggling with, hate it with all your being. Once you start hating it, you will naturally start avoiding wherever it may be found or wherever you may be tempted. You will start resisting the devil that way and you will be restored. Your, your fellowship with God will be restored and you will walk closer with him. The prerequisite is to fear the Lord. The command is to hate evil and wickedness. And what is the result? The result is God's blessing. This is the third point quickly. The result of hating evil and wickedness and instead pursuing righteousness is we have God's blessing. Proverbs eleven eighteen: The wicked worketh a deceitful work, but to him that soweth righteousness shall be a sure reward. If we pursue righteousness and avoid sinful living, we are guaranteed a reward. This is not always monetary again. There's many greater rewards out there that God gives. In Proverbs 19.23, a reward that He gives us is that He allows us to be satisfied and we will not be visited by evil. In Proverbs 31.21, if we pursue righteousness and hate evil and wickedness, we will find life, we will find righteousness, we will find honor. In Psalm 34.15, if we pursue righteousness, God will hear our cries. God will have His eyes upon us. In Psalm 37.25, if we pursue righteousness again, we will never be forsaken by Him. There are so many more blessings, so many more verses that indicate rewards that God gives to those who hate evil, who hate sin, and pursue righteousness, and pursue godly living. There are so many rewards to be had when you decide to live a godly life. At the end of the day, we hate sin because we don't want to disappoint God. We hate sin and we avoid sin because we respect and give, we, and we are in fear of Him. But there's also a reward for us if we decide to hate sin and pursue righteousness. We will have blessings given to us by the Lord. Some listening tonight may be deep, 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 deep into some sin. That individual may have not heard God speak to them in a very long time. It's because the sin that you are in, deeply involved in has separated you from His presence. But I promise that if you, you go to God with your sin, you ask for forgiveness, and you truly repent, and you adopt a new fear of the Lord, and you start hating sin as you ought to, I firmly promise that your relationship and your, pre- and your walk with God will return. He will not leave you forsaken if you return to Him. To serve as a closing, I'll read a, a quote here from John Henry Jowett. He was a famous British Protestant preacher. And he said this about sin. Sin is a blasting presence and every fine power shrinks and withers in its destructive heat. Every spiritual delicacy and blessing succumbs to its malignant touch. 
Sin impairs the sight and works towards spiritual blindness. Sin benumbs the hearing and tends to make men spiritually deaf. Sin perverts the taste, causing men to confound the sweet with the bitter and the bitter with the sweet. Sin hardens the touch and eventually renders a man past feeling. All of these are scriptural analogies. And the common significance appears to be this. Sin blocks and chokes the fine senses of the spirit. By sin we are desensitized, rendered imperceptive, and the range of our correspondence is diminished. Simply put, sin will create a calloused heart. Sin creates a calloused heart. Are you here tonight holding on to your calloused heart? To those again who are in sin right now and they know they are in sin, may I remind you that this pleasure is only appealing for a season and will only give satisfaction for a season. But if you entertain that sin again and again, continually, you will find that that particular act, that sin will rear its ugly head soon enough. And if you leave it alone, that sin will destroy you. Entertain sin, sin not um, repented of, those, will, those are the things that will destroy your life. That's the reason why God has instructed us to fear Him and to hate sin because He knows what is best for us as believers. Let us live out James 4, 7-8 and heed the words written by James here. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Folks, the moment you start fearing the Lord, the moment you start hating sin, that will give you what is the equipment necessary to be able to resist the devil. That will give you the ability to be able to flee from temptation. And if you are currently involved in sin, there's an option. The option is open for you to cleanse your hands and to purify your heart. Give away your callous heart. Give that to God and make your heart anew. Allow Him to restore your heart. All of us have a choice to make tonight. Be the oppressed slave of sin or be the blessed servant of the Most High. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.